I love that song by Peter Gabriel. It speaks to how many people think about the Bible. For some, they think the Bible is long and boring and irrelevant. And yet, as he said those words, he also said, but I love it when you read it to me. There's something about it that speaks to me about how to live, how to dance, how to find meaning in my life. And as we go through this series, Joy Story, I hope to help you discover that this book is a book of joy. Sure, there's tragedy and there's difficulty and there's, there, there's disappointment. It's the stuff of life. It's real. It's how God drops his joy story into our story. So as we open the book together, we're going to look today, you can tell folks part of your New Year's resolution, is that you've already read the first 12 chapters of Genesis. In the last seven minutes, we just took you from Genesis 1 all the way up to Genesis 12. And here we see the face as we walk into their home. We can feel the heat as we walk up to their tent. It's over 100 degrees in the Middle East. This couple is incredibly affluent, incredibly wealthy. They will come to be famous through generations, known as Abram and Sarah, or Abraham and Sarai. They get their names changed. And as you walk up to this couple that has fame, they have affluence, they have a great family and a great business, but as you look at their faces, there's not a lot of joy coming out. Their faces look worn out and tired. They're worn out from waiting. They're worn out from wishing. They're worn out from really a life of waiting for God's promises that he gave them Decades ago to come true. They're worn out from having moved from one location to another and now wondering what the next step is. They've been waiting to start their family, been waiting to see what's next. And that waiting has produced in them a a hurtful laughter. You know what hurtful laughter is? It's that nervous laughter that when someone asks you something, you sort of laugh it off. But the sense is that that laughter is is hiding some deeper scars of, of previous Mistakes that were made, maybe previous grievances that occurred. It's it's that cynical laughter that says, oh, you don't believe in the Bible, do you? Well, I used to have a faith. I used to go to Sunday school. Now I'm a little bit above and beyond that. It's the fearful laughter. Talked to a, a friend of mine recently who is in a new business is doing incredibly well. And I said, how are things going? He laughed. He said, well, well, but after my last business failed, I'm sort of waiting to see if it's going to last. His laughter came from a place of hurt in the past, a place of fear and anxiety. For for sometimes that hurtful laughter comes out in cynicism. For me, I know for me, some of the times when I was hurt the worst, that I was most disappointed or disillusioned, is at times I got the most sarcastic. I mean, I I was laughing a lot, but that laughter had had a real reaction to it, had a real kick to it. It was hurtful laughter. And God is going to take this couple that we see here. In the midst of their hurtful laughter, and he is going to transform and offer to transform for them what he wants to transform for you and I. To turn our hurtful laughter into hopeful laughter. He's going to do that by looking at, at our story and then God's story. And when God's story gets dropped into our story, it's then that we have the collision, the implosion of the joy story occurring in our life. So let's turn the page and begin with our story. Our story begins with Sarai. Or Sarah, as her name is changed to. And again, as you look at her face here upper right, she has been waiting now. Because her husband heard that God said that they were going to have a baby. And she's been waiting not weeks, not months, but years. More than years. She's been waiting decades, and she's not pregnant. 
And that has affected her life, her disposition. It's affected their marriage. It's affected their relationship. And she is just filled with hurtful anger of feeling like, well, maybe I, I was naive. Maybe I shouldn't have even thought this could happen. And it's here in the story, in Genesis, that God shows up and gives us a description of the hurtful anger, the, the, the hurtful laughter, the, the condition that they're in. It says in verse 11, Now Abraham and Sarah were old. Well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. She had passed the age. And that's what happens. There comes a point when you get past the age, past the point. You've got past the point. I'm past the point I can take it anymore. I'm past the point I believe in those kind of fairy tales anymore. I'm past the point of thinking it's ever going to happen. That dream has died. That hope is gone. It's the midlife of saying, maybe I'm past the point of my prime. Maybe I'm past the point of being as attractive as I once was. I've got hair I'm losing here, and I've got hair that's coming out here and here. What is wrong with that? We get past the point. And when you get to the place when you're past the point, there's the cynicism, the stoicism. It's sort of the, the culture of our age to laugh about everything, to keep ourselves distant, to not, to not believe too much, to not get too close to anybody so that we don't get hurt. Hurtful after. It's our story. It's not just Sarah's story. It's our story. And into this story, God speaks. And he says to her this. He says, therefore, Sarah, having heard that God has come to her again and said, you're going to have a child. Sarah laughed within herself. Now, notice, she doesn't laugh out loud, but she is laughing. She laughs within herself, hearing that she in her 80s or 90s is still going to have a child. She laughs within herself and says, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? The Hebrew context here of these phrases is very poignant. She doesn't just say, I'm old. The phrase actually means I'm worthless. I'm no good anymore. In that culture, you were only good if you you found your value from being a mother, being having kids. And since she's not the mother and hasn't been able to have kids, she feels worthless. She's past the point. But she laughs, but it's a hurtful laughter out of a place of I've given up that dream. Don't, don't ask me to awaken that dream. I've finally come to grips with the fact that it's never going to happen. She says, shall I have pleasure again? You might think, oh, you mean the pleasure of having a child. You might think that if you're a guy. You wouldn't think that if you're a girl. The phrase actually, shall I have pleasure again, is probably the condition of their marriage. They haven't had pleasure in a while. They haven't been intimate in a while. Their, their marriage, is, the, the, the cracks and fissures of this pressure has caused them to drift apart. So the idea of them having a baby, she can't even imagine them being together again. They're in a difficult phase of their relationship. And you know what? God is going to come to them in this passage while she's laughing to herself with this hurtful laughter. And he's going to offer to extract that hurtful laughter and to make a change. But I think what happens is many times when we find ourselves, before we get to the joy story, when we're here in our story, waiting is one of those things I have seen over the years that causes people's anger to go up or their, their hurtful laughter or cynicism to grow. It's, it's the fear that makes you a little more sarcastic. It, it, it's, it's the self-hatred of, I guess I am worthless. I guess I'm worth anything to anybody. Sometimes it's self-pity. Well, because life's treated me so bad, because things haven't come or, or gone down the way I hoped... I feel sorry for myself. I'm a martyr. And yet I have found the folks who are in the midst of self-pity. I know in myself, when when I start feeling sorry for myself, I can talk myself into just about anything. I make some of the worst, most destructive decisions 
when I allow the cynical, sarcastic laughter to take over me. Uh, in fact, I start participating in things that I think are good ideas that actually turn out to be terrible ideas. But because I, I've distanced myself from friends who can really say, Chad, think about that. I've distanced myself from folks who say, Chad, I love you enough to say, bad idea. Don't get into that. Whoa, what are you thinking? And the same thing occurs here with Sarah and Abraham. Is they have gotten to the place that this cynical laughter, this hurtful laughter in their life has caused them to start engaging in decisions that are going to be incredibly destructive in their work life, in their family life, and for their marriage, simply because it's blinded them to how it looks like a good decision might be really bad. So let's step into the story here in the bottom right and see what happens and how this hurtful laughter leads them to destructive behaviors. Let's watch. The Creator, who made the stars, will give us as many descendants to populate our land. He has promised you will have a child. I won't. You will. I I can't. It's too late for me. For you, there's still a chance. So here in the midst of her giving up on God, she comes up with a great idea, which is how about we have a child through our maidservant? And all of a sudden, this maidservant, by no choice of her own, is forced into a relationship with Abraham. And now we just see sort of a sickening look at a couple in the Bible who's now using a servant girl as a baby machine. And, and she thought it was a good idea because in her sense of worthlessness, she thought, well, you know, at least we got a plan B. And it will cause incredible problems, as you can imagine. The idea of having two wives and now the child is born and she feels jealous about it. It's just a total disaster. And yet what happens is that when that hurtful, cynical laughter takes over, we found ourselves making compromises at work and relationships and things just get worse and worse. And it's into this story, our story, whether it's making mistakes, whether it's boredom, whether it's disillusionment, it's into that story that God wants to step into the story. And that's where we turn the page from our story to God's story. Now, throughout the first chapters of Genesis, God has come to our story. And as we turn the page, he has found that he has appeared in many different ways. He, he's, he's appeared as the voice who says the flood is coming. He's, he's appeared as a, as a stove pot. He's appeared as darkness. He's been mysterious. But here he specializes and appears to Sarah in a way that she could most understand. Three strangers walk into their village. We'll find out later that two are angels and one is God himself. But he's not the pot, he's not the burning bush, he's, in here in this story, he's simply three regular folks with sore feet that need a drink. And here we see the God of the Old Testament is a God of tenderness and kindness. Because they show up and they're not coming to talk to Abraham. They've talked to Abraham many times. This time, for the first time in recorded history, the first time of philosophy or religion, God is so seeking out a relationship with a woman he wants to tell her how special she is. He wants to tell her he has a plan for her life. And therefore, these three come to Abraham and say, Where is your wife, Sarai, that we may speak to her? 
Because we want her to know that God has not given up on her. We want you to know that despite her disillusionment, despite some of the mistakes you guys have made, despite some of the bad things you've done, God still wants to work with you in the midst of your story. Well, she's overhearing from behind the tent, and she laughs when they tell her she's still, at 90, going to have a child. She laughs within herself and says, no way! So then one of the angels comes to speak to her. Remember, she laughed in herself. She didn't laugh out loud. She laughed within herself. And the angel comes to her and says, Sarah, why did you laugh? She gets defensive. I I didn't laugh. He says, yeah, yeah, you did laugh. He doesn't condemn her for it. He doesn't say, good, 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 God-following people shouldn't laugh. Shouldn't be a deal of solution. You shouldn't feel that way. No, he is so kind and tender. He's like a counselor. He says, you did laugh. And let's talk about why. Let's talk about why you're laughing and what's going on here. How I can help you in the midst of this. Because what God wants to do is God wants to extract her hurtful laughter. Because until he can extract her hurtful laughter, he won't be able to deposit hopeful laughter into her. And so here's what he says. Remember, she had laughed when she said, have I grown old? Am I worthless? Will I have pleasure again? And my Lord, my husband, he's he's old also. So the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Shall saying... Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now what rabbis who've studied this for centuries have noted is that what she says is, I'm worthless, shall I have pleasure again, and my Lord is is old too. But when God quotes her back, why did she say, I'm too old to have a child? He doesn't quote her exactly. In fact, rabbis have noted and commentators have noted that he extracts all the self-hate He extracts all the worthlessness. He extracts all that hurtful anger from her phrase when he repeats it back to her. I say, I know you're doubting. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? I know you don't want to give again. I know you don't want to hope again. I know you don't want to dream again. But let me help you extract all of that anger and pain and difficulty and sardonic sarcasm that's just dwelling within you. Because here's what God knows. He wants you to have hopeful laughter. But you can't have it until you first extract the hurtful laughter that's within you. He said, well, I went through a divorce last year. I went through a divorce years ago. And now I'm so guarded. I've said to myself, I'm never going to go through that again. But because you're so guarded, you're never going to experience real love again. Because real love always has the ability, the possibility of risk of being hurt. Another way to say it is that God will not heal what we refuse to feel. We're not going to dream again as long as we're cynical. We're not going to find what God has for us because in the midst of that, we're not going to be comforted until we admit to him that we're hurting. So God comes to Sarah and says, let me extract the hurtful laughter so that I can replace it with hopeful anger, hopeful laughter. I was uh, reading a story a few years ago about a, a woman in Broadway. She was doing incredibly well. She was a top Broadway hit. Things were going incredibly well for her career. And all of a sudden, things took a turn. Things took a turn where one of her shows just didn't do well, got a few bad reviews, and she started a tailspin. She went from being on top of the world to all of a sudden questioning her worth, questioning whether or not, you know, what's happened. I've never had to deal with this before. Her friends tried to get close to her, and she started pushing them away. She got more and more sarcastic. She was laughing all the time, but in a real reactionary way. They find a few months later that she committed suicide. And they asked her friends, what happened to her? I mean, how did she go from here to here? Several of them said, she lost the ability to laugh. 
she just started taking herself way too seriously and, and, and relationships and God and life and meaning not seriously enough. I read another story about 10 years ago about a man. He uh, was in a real difficult situation. He was driving his van and they got into a real weird accident and he lost all of his kids and his wife. And yet that kind of circumstance that would produce a lot of disillusionment and sarcasm in me, he, he loses his wife and his kids. He stands up right before the video cameras. And they asked him, is this a, is, you're a person of faith. Are you going to give up your faith? And he said, no, I believe that God is with me. He's given me the strength. I believe he's here for me. Powerful. How God could drop his story in the midst of this tragic story. And yet about a year later, he found himself wrestling with habits and temptations he hadn't really wrestled with, at least not that deeply before. He found himself increasingly addicted to pornography. He went to his pastor, he went to a counselor, and, and, and he couldn't break it. In fact, he found it getting worse. And about a year later, he ended up with a note committing suicide saying, I can't take it anymore. God can't forgive me. And here's a guy who had enough faith to believe in a God who was powerful, a God who would be there to be his comfort during loss. But he didn't know about a God who was gracious and forgiving and merciful enough to help him in his temptations. And that's why the God of the Bible comes to us wherever we are. And he offers us a full kaleidoscope of who he is. If you need comfort, he's got it. If you need strength, he has it. If you need hope, come here. If you need peace, I'm the one. If, if you have shame, let me cover it. If you've got guilt, let me forgive it. That's what happens when God's story comes to our story. He offers whatever we need to us. And he says, trust me. I know that you, 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 one sense you hate this hurt in you, but it's also become your identity. You're the person who always says, well, you know what happened to me a few years ago. You'll never believe about what my ex-husband did. You'll never believe about how I was betrayed by my partner. And that story you tell over and over again. And that story has produced venom within you. And the same venom that gives you that adrenaline rush when you tell the story is the same venom that needs to be extracted. And so God comes to you at the new year the same way he comes to Sarah and Abraham and says, will you let me extract the hurtful laughter? Because if you do, if you will trust me to extract that, to bring healing and comfort and joy into that spot in your heart, then once that hurtful laughter is extracted, you are set up to experience a new time of hope in the new year. A new type of relationship with me in the new year. A new type of outlook in life for the new year. But you can't get to hope until you deal with the hurt. You can't get to me healing until you admit that you're really feeling a certain way. And so as we turn the page, we move from, from God's story, we move to the collision of, of our story and God's story. Because when our story, whatever it is, and we allow God's story to be dropped into our story, it's then that the joy story occurs. And that's what happens. He says, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. He said, you did laugh. And as he works with her and extracts that together, she begins a new outlook. And that outlook will culminate in this picture on the bottom left. We see Abraham next to a tent with his hands open. After years of having a marriage that was mediocre that was hurting, that was difficult. Because God stepped into their story and they began to let go of the bitterness of the past, 
their whole relationship moved in a new direction. Let's watch. Welcome, Lord. Please, join me. Bring water. Prepare food for our visitors. traveled far? Yes. A long way. Abraham, where is your wife? In her. Next year, Sarah will have a son. faces. Their, their whole outlook has changed. Now, the lesson of this is not, if you wait long enough, God will eventually do what you told him he had to do. You know, because you hear sermons about that sometimes. God doesn't give a promise that he will always make your circumstances what you always wanted, but he does say, I will be with you, and you will know, having extracted all that hurtful languor in your life, that I am with you, and you will see life through a new lens again. And you'll experience joy again this year in ways you didn't last year. You'll experience hope in ways you didn't last year. And what's amazing is this hurtful laughter that characterized their life for decades. Now the word Isaac, laughter, will be the hopeful laughter that will be with them the rest of their life. In fact, it's an interesting passage. A couple chapters later. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac 
when he was eight days old and God commanded him. And Abraham was 100 years old and his son Isaac was born to him. And here's what Sarah says. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. See, she was laughing before, but it was a hurtful laughter. But now you hear the optimism in her. God has made me laugh. It's a new kind of God-given laughter, not that hurtful, cynical laughter. And other people are going to laugh with me. She's not taking herself so seriously anymore. She says, you know what? The idea that a 90-year-old woman has a baby, that's going to make people laugh. But no longer does that make me feel worthless or like, oh, people are staring at me. What do you think about me? It's sort of a funny situation, isn't it? We're going to be the only couple going to, going to Walmart and buying Pampers and Depends at the same time. But instead of that sort of criticizing yourself, you just see this. But God is with me and it's a new outlook. And, and no longer am I going to be a martyr and, and be stuck in self-pity the rest of my life. God has made me laugh. And with that laughter, all who see it will laugh with me. Because now she knows if my pain goes up, the joy of God goes up with it. If my circumstances get difficult, and they might, God's grace and strength will go up too. We've made some terrible mistakes in our life, but if our guilt goes up, the forgiveness of God goes up as well. A whole new outlook. That God stepped into her life, and all the naysayers, all the sarcasm, all the cynicism gets pushed away with a new sense of hope. I was reading a book last year, it's called The Power of a Habit. The story of a company, Alcoa, an aluminum company, in 1987 was doing incredibly poorly. So they put a new CEO in place, a bureaucrat, his name was Paul O'Neill. And they had a big meeting in a, in a posh Manhattan office, and they were going to introduce the new CEO to all of the, the company and all the investors. So many of the investors were there. This, this new CEO came in place, and he said, here's what we're going to focus on to make our company move into the next into the next." Uh, a decade, the next century. Here's how we're going to move forward from the gridlock of union and management. Here's how many of you have a lot of skepticism about the company and where we're headed. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to focus on one thing. Keeping injuries down. Because when you care about injuries, you have ownership in the company. And therefore, you'll be, commit to a habit of excellence. The investors looked at each other. There was a mad rush after the meeting to get to the payphones to call their 20 top clients and say, sell, sell, sell. They put a hippie in charge. That's an exact quote. And yet what happened is that company over the next 15 years will increase its profits five times. Because what he did is he focused on something that everyone could agree on. By making the place safe, by keeping injuries down, and making folks report within 24 hours if there was an injury. And only giving promotions to those who helped make the, 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 the environment of the culture better. He began to put in practices and habits that had been opposed by both union and management up to that point. Like it says in the book this. Rules that unions had spent decades opposing, such as measuring the productivity of individual workers, were suddenly embraced because such measurements helped everyone figure out what part of the manufacturing process was getting out of whack, posing a safety risk. Policies that managers had long resisted, such as giving workers autonomy to shut down a production line when the pace became overwhelming, were now welcomed because that was the best way to stop injuries before they occurred. And by the year 2000, when he retired, the company's profits were up fivefold. 
simply because he came into a group of folks who had cynical attitudes toward the company, toward the new management, toward the new management style, and he turned everything on its head. And it went from being a company where folks said the worst advice I ever gave was when I told them, sell, sell, sell. And God will come into your life and he will try unusual things. Letting go of bitterness, forgiving your enemies, giving away lavish amounts of your money, loving the unlovable. That's crazy talk. That says it may sound like crazy talk. But it will help extract the hurtful anger and deposit hopeful anger, hopeful laughter into your life in a way that you've never experienced before. But I need you to change roles. Stop trying to be the CEO of your life and let me be in control of your life. No story of a Broadway play, New York. True story, they're working rehearsals for this play, and as they were had casted, they had this lead woman who was just a fantastic actress. But as they were in rehearsals, after week after week after week, just things weren't going well at all. And everybody knew it. Just, it was missing that pop, that magic, that aha, that wow factor of a great play. So the director looked at it. He made a hard decision, a difficult decision. He decided, as he called the team together one day, that he was going to take the actress playing the lead, and he was going to pull her out of the lead. And he had noticed this one girl who was playing a small character in the background, and he asked her to be the lead. And he took the lead and put her in the background, and in the background, he became the lead. They began to practice for the next few weeks. And even though the lead was incredibly disappointed that she had lost the lead, it was obvious even to her that there was something about the play that was working now. There was a pop. There was a magic. There was a wow factor. And by, by moving herself out of the lead into the background, the whole play became better. And that's the same thing that God offers us. He says, listen, you think that by leading the life, by being in the limelight, by being in front, by guarding yourself and taking care of yourself, that you're going to bring the joy and happiness you want this year. But I'm telling you, if you put me in the lead, take me out of the background of your life and allow me to put you in the background where you have a place to play in a larger story, you're going to find initially, oh, I didn't want that. But then you're going to say, well, life works so much better this way. I've got so much more meaning and, and, and power in my life this way. And what looks like a sacrifice becomes a step of victory. Because God, he turns, he extracts the hurtful anger and he deposits a newfound hopeful laughter into you. But see, joy, the kind of laughter I'm talking about, it's not something that you learn about, some ethereal like the Greeks. You know, joy is out there, it's a thing that you grab hold of. The Bible, the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition is something far different. Joy is not something you learn. Joy is someone you love. See, commentators tell us that the Bible, the person who showed up at the end of the Bible, wasn't just an angel. It was actually God himself who appeared to Sarah. And the God who appeared to her is what, what, what Bible commentators call a theophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. That it was Jesus himself who appeared in the Old Testament. And he came to her and said, I can extract the hurtful anger. And I can bring you joy and hope. And therefore, what she fell in love with that day, what she discovered that day, was not something but someone. And so as we approach the new year, I want to give you an opportunity to get to know someone. Just as Sarah did. Just as that promise said in Genesis. Instead of going home and thinking about this or taking some time to maybe uh, you know, later this week check your notes, I want to give us just a few minutes together 
that maybe God would want to take a few minutes in this room and extract some pain and difficulty from your life. So maybe you just want to pause. Maybe you want to pull out your notes and write a few things down. Maybe you want to bow your head in prayer. Whatever you feel comfortable doing, let's bow our heads or or, uh, pull out our notes. And I just want to walk you through an exercise where God might meet you. First one is this. You might say, God, I've been protecting myself and I'm very guarded. But God, I want to trust you to be my protector. God, last year I was filled with a lot of sadness. I'm even angry. I'm still angry about some things. But God, I want to trust you. That you can even bring good out of these bad circumstances. God, I've been believing the lie that change isn't possible. That things won't get different. That my marriage won't be different. That my career won't be different. For I want you to extract that cynicism. And I want to trust that with you all things are possible. God, I don't want to feel alone. I don't want to feel like life doesn't have any purpose. I want to put my faith and confidence in you. God, that you could bring purpose to my life. That you could be the one that could help me find the meaning that I need and I'm longing for. And I'm going to commit this year to pursuing you in a new way. Father, we ask that wherever each one of us is, wherever we came into this room, Father, that you will meet us where we are just like you did with Sarah. And that you will help us to experience a brand new joy, a brand new um, peace, a brand new hope that this new year can be everything it can be because of who you are. Because of what you will do in our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, as we head out today, I want, I'll give you a, uh, an opportunity to maybe take the next step. And one of the ways that you can sort of begin to explore the Bible, I mean, today we just went through 25 chapters of Genesis. So you can already go brag to all your friends. I, I went through 25 chapters. Let's get started well. But more than that, we want to help you dig deeper in that. So we are going to have some group opportunities, more than we've ever had in our church history, where you can go through the Bible with a group of people, build some friendships, make some connections beyond Sunday morning. We're going to have fast-track groups. We're going to have story form life groups. We've got women's groups and men's groups. Here's a quick promo of some of the groups that are available. You might want to be part of them next year. Let's watch. It's the quickest way to understand the greatest story ever told. It comes with science experiments, illusions, the unexpected drawings. You never know what you're going to get. How to face adversity. How to trust God. How to stop running from God. How to never give in. Join me for Fast Track. The quickest way to understand the greatest story ever told.
So if you head out to the registration desk, that is one of the series we're going to be doing uh, two nights a week um, for couples to get together for fast track to study the Bible together and then have some groups to talk about that and learn the Bible for the first time or sort of review or a new time. Story form life groups to dig into the Bible. If you're new to Bible study, it's a great way to sign up. Women's studies. We've got all kinds of different offerings. Men's uh, meeting on Tuesdays again. We'd love to help you get connected in the new year and get into the Bible. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week for part two of Joy Story. Thanks again.